Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. So it's my great pleasure today to welcome Gethin as our podcast guest. So welcome, Gethin. Welcome, Tammy, I was going to say then, but thank you, Tammy, for having me on here. And uh, I'll just like to say it's Christmas, so that's why I've got to get on, get on, okay? Yeah, so for any of our um, listeners who are not watching on YouTube, so if you're listening to this on one of the podcast platforms, I have the great delight of um, looking at Gethin dressed near enough as an elf, I would say. Gethin, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I am dressed as an elf, but that is because I am quite short anyway. I'm only five foot three, so it's uh, it's my wannabe person, the elf. <laughs> but you're not a naughty elf on the shelf then? You're not sat on the shelf? No, I was, but they released me now. I'm now the good elf. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, it is coming up to Christmas um, when we're recording this, and we will be publishing over the Christmas period because this series of podcasts has actually been requested by frontline workers, and it really is about supporting them with their emotional resilience, recognising that actually not only are we in unprecedented times, Christmas and New Year is going to be really difficult for vulnerable and marginalised people. And actually, even if we just reflect on the sector as a whole, we've been talking, Gethin, for a good couple of years now about how under pressure and overworked some frontline workers are. So I really appreciate you here and I'm really looking forward to talking to you. But before I go on about the topic, do you mind just telling our listeners who you are and a little bit of your background and what you get up to? Okay, yeah. So my name's Geffen Jones. I've got a company called Unlocking Potential. I mainly work within prisons, charities and local authorities. And I work with both the staff, to say in prisons, prison officers, but I also work with the residents, so the men, women or children that are serving sentences within custody. And the main area that I work within is about breaking down the them and us narrative. So I try to work with the staff about how they can create more human to human relationships. And I work with the client groups about how they can learn to trust a system that they fundamentally mistrust. So I do that through training, but I also do inspirational speaking and coaching. The reason why I do that is uh, I am a product of the system myself. And the only way to explain that is the first 35 years of my life, you can probably find in a filing cabinet somewhere. I went through children's homes, foster placements, secure units. I went through the youth prison estate, the adult prison estate. I went through community sentencing. I went through drug treatment programs, detoxes, homeless hostels, you name it. I was within it. In 2006, I went through a fundamental shift and change. I then had a successful career within public services, managed staff teams of 40 plus in relations to many areas linked to children's services, adult services, and many others. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow, Geffen, that was a real whistle-stop tour. You've certainly had a busy, eclectic and complex life, haven't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and it's quite funny, actually. Well, of course, you say funny. It's, uh, I've done a little post on social media this morning, you know, about Christmas is coming. And Christmas is always a funny time of year for me anyway. You know, I spent many Christmases in children's homes. I spent my first Christmas in a prison when I was 15 years of age. Then I spent eight years as a prisoner. And, and then I also spent many years as well as a dependent heroin user as well. You know, and Christmas was just about how I could find a bit of gear to get me over Christmas period because most people were their phones off on them days. 
but yeah, so I know the pressures it kind of had on me as somebody that was kind of trapped in that world. But also as well, I remember what it was like as a professional as well, having to try to be able to sort of like work a little bit harder to kind of give our clients some kind of a Christmas or support that they needed through a very difficult time. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got that lens on both perspectives, really, haven't you? But before we move on, Geffen, you were just mentioning to me prior to us hitting record that you've also just been taken on to do some really quite impactful consultancy as well, haven't you? Yes, yes. So uh, I've just been named as the uh, lived experience consultant for the reunification of probation within England and Wales. And I'll be uh, working directly with Jim Barton, overseeing the whole programme, and uh, Pierre Sinha, that's a deputy, but also as well I have a direct link to Lucy Fraser, who's the uh, prison minister, to be able to kind of put the voice of the lived experience and the client, but also as well the frontline staff workers as well, you know, because they're all about policy and process. And I'm like, I'm going to be the person that says, actually, you deliver this policy and process here, but this is the outcome it will have on the frontline worker and the client. I once done a talk which was called From the uh, Prison Cell to the Boardroom. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it in reverse. I'm going to do it from the boardroom down to the front line. Wow. So I know we're here to talk about emotional resilience and we'll go on to that in a moment, but I really do just want to take a moment just to say, and I know I've said this to you before, but gosh, you know, if you have a look back, the journey that you've been on, the barriers that you've faced and the opportunities that you've grasped against all odds to actually keep growing, developing, surviving sometimes, building relationships, and then get into a period where you can give back. I really do hope that you do sit back sometimes with that big smile on your face, just going, yeah, this is what life is about, because the difference that you're making every day and that role that you've just given me the example of there, that is absolutely phenomenal. The difference that it will make to people who are in those prison cells, who are in those children's homes, is going to be unprecedented. Yeah, I do acknowledge that the journey I've come from, it is sometimes like literally looking at two different lives. But I suppose as well, I've, I've known for quite a long time that I'm better off working on a macro level rather than a micro level, because I'm also very aware as well that, you know, even though I've come to terms with all of my own trauma and stuff that's happened in the past, is when I've worked too closely on a one-to-one basis, it can be quite overwhelming for me and I kind of naturally take on all of what's going on, you know. So I've always wanted to try to get to a place where I can change stuff at a strategic level, which is then going to have an impact on many, you know. So, yeah, so I'm very grateful every single day. I'm just, yeah, thank God. Yeah, and I think that's a really important reflection there, Gethin, because I know that me and you have talked previously about the fact that there is a little bit of a theme happening in statutory services and charitable services where they kind of roll out people with lived experience and don't necessarily always consider the vicarious burnout that can happen with that or the triggers or the trauma that's deeply embedded. And I know that both you and I, we both have complex histories that we reflect on and they've really they've really informed what we're doing professionally. But actually, you've pulled us onto emotional resilience with this seamless link because the first person you have to look after is yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll give an example of it. When I worked within children's social care and I'd be on uh, child protection conferences, And throughout my own experience, you know, I was in the care system as a child. As an adult, I had my child that was on a child protection conference and I was now a professional. So I had to make decisions in line with uh, sections 47 of the Children's Act. But when I was kind of in that environment, it used to sometimes feel like it was me that was being spoken about, you know, so I understood it from the child the parent and then the professional so even though my input was really valuable 
it used to take a whole lot of energy out of me. But what I was very good at was seeking help and support. And I had a really, really good manager that very much understood my past. So what I would do is I'd always kind of go and offload to my manager or any sort of like impact that it had on me emotionally. So then I could carry on and do my job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really important. It's one of the things that I certainly mention regularly whenever I'm delivering any training is the fact that actually that relationship with your manager where you can have supervision that isn't all about your clients. So it's really important, of course, that we look at caseloads and we look at the journey and we consider the cycle of change of our service users and things like that. Of course, that's really important to analyze those cases. Actually, an element of that supervision has to be about the individual as well and how they're coping and how they're managing. And it sounds like that's something that you really benefited from in those times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then when I went into the management level myself, you know, supervision was key. That was how I created quite successful services. But also as well, whenever I sort of like first supervise a staff member, I'd always ask them what they wanted for supervision and what they wanted the supervision to look like. Because some people very much wanted to talk about themselves. Others didn't want to talk about themselves. They just wanted to talk about their caseload. So I'd adapt the supervision to their needs rather than my needs or the needs of the service. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being adaptable is so important and finding other ways, because if they don't want to talk in supervision about themselves, you can absolutely accept that. But there also needs to be relationships that they have with other people or other ways for them to be able to share kind of any concerns or debrief or any personal things that are happening in their lives that might be impacting their work. Because I think we forget really quickly, don't we? And quite conveniently as well, you know, we forget that the people on the front line who are undertaking all of this work with really complex people experiencing extreme vulnerabilities, et cetera, people on the front line are people too. And sometimes as a country, we remember that, you know, if we reflect back to the beginning of lockdown and things. And we saw some really lovely recognition of the fact that people were working hard to keep the country going. But sometimes when it suits us, I say us meaning collectively, it's like it's forgotten that the people on the front line have lives, complexities, mental health difficulties, families, backgrounds, you know, trauma, all of that interconnected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And when you talk about emotional intelligence, you know, uh, I always say that's not just about our own emotional intelligence. It's about understanding the emotions of others, you know. And if you're kind of a, a frontline staff member when you're working with clients, yeah, your own emotional awareness intelligence is going to help you better understand what it is that they may not be saying and how it is that you can kind of get them to a place where actually they may want to say something. But that also works with your staff members as well, you know, is like, you are the one that is aware of what's going on for them. And then you can kind of work out the best way of actually getting them the support that they need if they're not willing to just speak with yourself. Yeah. Emotional intelligence is really important. And I think it works very much in partnership with emotional resilience, because if as a manager, you have a level of understanding and ability and you have that emotional intelligence, you do naturally tune into other people and you might have to consciously tell yourself to, but you are able to. I think it can be difficult. I've certainly had some managers previously who actually aren't very emotionally intelligent. Therefore, I've had to really take some high level responsibility for my own resilience at work as well, because I know that if I'm struggling at home, it affects my work. If I'm struggling at work, it affects my work. And actually, the most poignant time for me was actually when I was working in a prison myself. And it was actually the treatment manager who said to me, Tammy, can we have a conversation? 
And when I went to speak to her, my marriage had broken up a few months before. And I felt like I was absolutely managing that and keeping it very separate to work. And what she had seen, because my emotional resilience was low, because at home I was being emotionally battered, because my emotional resilience was low, she had seen that starting to slip within some of my work as well. Whereas I hadn't recognized that myself at all. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is that I'm talking about, you know, is when you work with your staff members and you've got that intelligence yourself, and then you can kind of see the resilience of someone may or may not have. You know, I had a staff member and I used to see it. It would always come out in their case notes, really. And then they're behind on lots of other different areas. And I used to know at that point that their emotional resilience was quite low. And the same sort of thing, and I remember one girl in particular, and I was talking to her, and she was having some real difficulties at home with her partner, you know, and then what we did was we had some conversations about how it was that she could better manage that, how she could manage her time, and then, you know, she started to better take care of herself, and then, lo and behold, her targets were being met. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing, isn't it? The difference that it can make when you're struggling yourself and how that can then be displayed in the work that you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. What I think is interesting as well, like you gave some examples there, Gethin, about recognising in case notes and things that things were starting to slip. But one of the other things that I see really regularly is people's professional boundaries as well. It's a case of when we're not managing and firing all cylinders and we're not our best selves, and actually our professional boundaries in the activity that we undertake seem to then start to wobble slightly. I've seen that quite a few times and be really quite concerning. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. You know, I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with professional boundaries, yeah, because sometimes I think some professional boundaries are too rigid, you know, and and for me, I always talk about human-to-human relationships. So it wasn't the system that rehabilitated me. It was individuals that worked within it. And these people created a human-to-human relationship with me, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, so what they did was they showed me the person behind the professional badge, yeah? Uh, Which means that sometimes, you know, they had to kind of go into that grey area, yeah? You know, you've got that grey area. So for me, you know, some people can kind of get too stuck behind a professional boundary, so they don't show any human, yeah? They're just showing this portrayal of something or what they are, you know? Uh, But then, like you say, Sometimes people can go through the grey area and to the wrong side, you know, and I have seen that before as well, you know, and I always see it within the prison system, you know, and that's a really good system within it. So with prison officers, they always call it jailcraft, yeah, and they're the best prison officers, but they really know how to navigate that grey But then what can happen is you can have prison officers that don't know how to navigate the grey and then they go to the other side and then they become a risk to the prison themselves and everybody else, you know, so... But that us as managers, we need to be able to kind of recognise that as well, you know, and, and it's not about watching everything they do, but sometimes you, you, you just sometimes hear a conversation, you go, oh, <laughs> and then you have to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. When I reflect back on what changed my life and put me on a different course, absolutely, human-to-human relationship. I know certainly when at Tay we deliver the professional boundaries training, it's really interesting, depending on the organisations that we're working with, about the context that they're working with him. Because particularly from a third sector perspective, then actually in general, third sector are really quite good at that human to human relationship, but they don't always know when to stop. And so they can give too much of themselves, yep. which then leads to burnout and then has an impact on their family. 
And then you can have the other side where actually you're not giving any of yourself. So actually you're not permeating the other person or connecting with the other person in any human way to actually help them make change. And I, I like the way you explain it, Geffen, because it really is a grey area and it takes a little bit of dancing and a little bit of skill to be able to actually operate within that. But I truly believe that I've operated within that really well when I've been myself emotionally resilient. There's been times in my life where I've needed work to fill me up as much as work has needed me to turn up and be done, if that makes sense. Whereas now I have that work-life balance, then I'm not going to work to meet a need I've got. You know, I'm going to work to do the best I can for other people within that context. And sometimes I think that potentially that's where one of those emotional resilience lines are, because if you're desperately seeking something from the people that you're working with, it can lead you into a bit of a dangerous position sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I think you need to kind of know your drivers, you know, so for me, the reason why I kind of go to work is like the number one reason is I want to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, the second one is that I need to earn a living. And the third one is the social element. Yeah. Because I'm a very social person. So when I've got a balance of all three of those, yeah, then actually I'm usually quite emotionally settled. You know, as soon as it sort of starts to just tip into one of them areas, yeah, then I'll become emotionally drained, you know, and, uh, and I kind of know when it is that my emotional resilience is, is starting to weaken because I start to get quite resentful with people and, and I start to want to push people away. And that's when I know actually something's a little bit of out of balance here. And at this moment, I need to concentrate on me and see how it is that I can help myself so I can get myself back to that point of where I need to be. Uh, so that's really interesting. So you've kind of learned to be able to uh, assess yourself and check yourself and then try and readdress the balance before it becomes too unbalanced to actually make a negative impact, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this literally happened to me recently, uh, probably about three months ago. And it's one of them things where I, I always say this is better to do one or two things very, really well than many things badly, you know, and what yeah. was happening is I'm always one of these people that want to help you yeah, because I want to make a difference as part of my driver. Yeah. But then what happens is I'll say yes to too many people. Then what happens, yeah, is I can't spin all of them plates and some of those plates start to drop. Then that impacts me. It impacts my belief about myself and my own values, you know, and, and then it takes its toll, you know. And because I was kind of in that little bit of a bad place as well, I was then kind of like doing quite a lot of social media and I was scrolling through it. And then I was thinking everybody was far better than me and everybody was having such success and I'm such a failure. And literally, I just had to go, get and stop. Yeah, just stop. Yeah, so I disconnected myself from a few different networks, said, I'm really sorry, I can't do this at this time. Can we look at it next year? And I reduced my social media and uh, I felt emotionally fit and healthy again. I was doing press-ups. <laughs> Real press-ups or metaphorical ones, that's important. Ones. Yeah, I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services, services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive and really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. 
We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. But you bring along a really good point there, Gethin, about understanding ourselves and being able to recognise that and, and take some responsibility for that as well. Do you know, I gave an example of my manager spotting the signs and symptoms in me. And you talked about how you as a manager absolutely use your own emotional intelligence to spot the signs in other people. But actually, within all of this, there is also recognition of the fact that we're all adults. Yeah. We've all chosen to do this job. Do you know, we could go and, I don't know, stack shelves in Tesco's or, or we could go and drive lorries. And, you know, there's loads of different jobs out there that absolutely need resilience in a variety of different ways, but not necessarily the same way as a frontline position working with marginalised people or complex needs, vulnerabilities, etc. And so this is an active choice that we're making to be within this sector. And alongside that also comes that element of responsibility and recognition that actually if we're not emotionally resilient, if we're not in a good place, then actually the service that we're delivering to other people won't be what it needs to be. And both you and I have both said it was human relationships and it was professionals within their role that actually helped us in a variety of different ways be able to transform our lives. And because of that, the generational cycle of harm, abuse, offending, etc., has stopped with us. Do you know, sometimes we do need to take a moment to recognise the magnitude of that. But that's happened because obviously elements of ourselves and obviously elements of environment and opportunity and things like that. But fundamentally, I truly believe that it was about the people. But those people were able to give us enough of themselves to be able to support us on our journey without themselves collapsing under that pressure. Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I think personal development, yeah, and a self-awareness of you, yeah, is the greatest way for you to increase your emotional intelligence and your emotional resilience. You know, and I always used to have this little analogy that I used to say to staff, yeah. So even though, like, you know, we're working with complex needs, yeah, I said, imagine that you're working in a cardboard box factory, yeah. Okay, if you worked in a cardboard box factory, you couldn't take home a couple of cardboard boxes every day, yeah. Because what would happen was in a few months, you wouldn't be able to move in your house because it's just surrounded <laughs> by cardboard boxes. Yeah? And it's no different when we work with people. Yeah. So we will automatically take on the trauma or the situation of what's going on from somebody. Yeah. And that is a mental cardboard box. Yeah. That we're taking with inside of us, you know. And before long, we become overwhelmed with all of the cardboard boxes that are around us which means that we can't see the solution. And then that can cause a stress, anxiety and everything else, you know. So for me, the speaking with others, you know, whether that's your manager, whether that's sort of like your colleagues or anybody at all, where you can actually get rid of these cardboard boxes, which is like take them to the recycling. Yeah. And actually, you know, life is going to be so much better. 
Do you know what, Gethin? I think I might steal that analogy and use it a few times. I love it because it's such an obvious one, isn't it? You know, we are going to get overwhelmed. And I think people naturally go into this work because either they have their own story, somebody connected to them has their own story, or they're very empathetic people. And so that immediately means that we're wanting to help, support, care. You know, it's a whole nother podcast to talk about the realisation that all of us have in our professional career that we can't solve the world, but we can do our bit within it. (laughs) You know, that's a whole other realisation. But within this, I think that that recognition that if we desperately want to do the best we can for the people that we're working with, we have to be in the best position emotionally ourselves to be able to do that. And we're very quick at putting other people first and not recognising the impact that that's having on us. And you said that you can get kind of a little bit snappy and such like when you can feel that unbalance happening. And I would say I do exactly the same. You know, I can absolutely tell whether that's with colleagues I work with, whether that's with my family or whether that's with the shopkeeper that has given me the wrong change. I can tell when I'm getting close to that line. And I've just had my 40th birthday and I've not been able to tell for that long. This is something I've been working on over the last kind of five, 10 years of that self-recognition it's important it, it makes a difference doesn't it yeah absolutely absolutely you know and our development and learning is continuous we're never the finished article i always kind of say that you know and i'm just about to celebrate my 50th birthday in a couple of weeks time ah oh, happy uh, nearly birthday <laughs> yeah i'm gonna to have to like postpone the party though because uh we're probably going to be in another lockdown for that but you know that just means i can stay 49 for a bit longer that's uh, what i said about 40 that is exactly what i said <laughs> I suppose as well, something else that kind of helps with me as well in my personal development stuff is I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. I listen to lots of sort of like uh, spiritual teachers, like Wayne Dyer is somebody that I kind of really sort of like listen to a lot at the moment, you know, and and a lot of that is about self-care, that taking care of me, you know, and and actually when you take better care of you, yeah, then you are naturally a better person and you're able to support everyone that's around you, you know. So, yes, it is a journey, you know, but for us to have that journey, first of all, we have to recognise that it's a journey that we need to go on. And then it's about actively sort of like reflecting on how we are, whether that's good or bad, and what it is that we can maybe do to make it better. You know, and I think that's always a personal journey. You know, it's the same as when you're going into recovery or change or, or whatever it is that we're doing when we're delivering it to people, you know, is actually they have to choose, yeah, to start to take a look at themselves to make changes so that they can be a better version of themselves, yeah. Well, let me tell you, professionals, we have to do exactly the same. And sometimes <laughs> we need to listen to our own messages. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we have to listen to our own messages. And I guess as well, also, you know, we're both sitting here and we've been around a little while now. You know, we're not over the hill, but we've been around a little while. And when I reflect back to when I was a much younger professional, I'm really grateful to some of the more kind of experienced professionals that were around to kind of catch me or point me in the right direction. Or like I said, with my treatment manager, recognize when things were getting a little bit wobbly. So I think depending on where we are in our career as well, and within our life and our kind of understanding and frame of reference and things like that, will also enable us to recognize more from a personal perspective what we need or whether actually we're looking out for our colleagues a little bit more in that way as well. Because I I love it. Do you know when I'm delivering a training course and I see like 
a 22-year-old exuberant, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed person that's just come in, can't wait to work within criminal justice or social care, and they're going to absolutely change the world. And I love the excitement that they bring with them. But I feel like it is my role within that training session to also put some of those protective barriers around them so that they can bounce about and spread that exuberance. Because us that have been around a while, we, we feed off that as well. You know, we need that as much as they need our experience. But I very much feel that within that, without curbing that enthusiasm, it's also about helping them see where the holes might be and helping them to avoid them rather than fall straight down them, really. Absolutely, absolutely. I did a uh, guest lecture for some social work students a couple of weeks ago, and I also do guest lectures for criminology students as well, you know, and, and, and there's that enthusiasm there, that hunger. And the thing that I always kind of say to them as well is I'll give them a little bit of a reality, you know, especially if they're going into a statutory service. And I'll say, look, you know, truth of the matter is 80% of your time is going to be feeding a machine. Yeah, only 20% of your time is going to be working with the people and sort of like influencing the change that you want. The biggest thing that you can maybe do as a professional is to create a really strong network with the third sector, yeah? So create a really strong network with other professionals, yeah? So you're not overwhelming yourself in that 20% of your time that you have to do everything, you know, because there's a wealth of other people around you that can help deliver what it is that you can't deliver. And I always explain it a bit like, you know, you're the center cog in a bicycle wheel, yeah? You need to get as many of them off as possible, yeah, that can help support that change, you know, because otherwise it will burn you out. It will burn you out because, you know, the trouble is, is it's a very bureaucratic world, yeah? There's a lot of, lot of risk and information, report writing, and everything else that we have to feed on a daily basis. The best thing, the best gift I always say is get a big network. Absolutely. I think that's such a powerful piece of advice that you've given them. I would also flip it on its head and say that the best thing for the service user is that you build that network too, because it was certainly a piece of learning that I had to learn. Um, It didn't come naturally to me, but to recognize that actually it really isn't in the service user's best interest to rely on you for everything. Actually, what your job is to support them and empower them to be able to have a network that they can go to for the resources and the support that they need. And actually the best thing is when they don't need you anymore. And that's what I think I meant earlier a little bit when I said it's about what you need from your job. Because actually as the professional, whether you recognize it or not, what you need is that continual feedback, thanks and gratitude. Then quite likely that's about where you're at and some work needs to be done on that, potentially before you're working with people who have complex needs and vulnerabilities. Because what they need is they need the best version of you within the context of your role, within the boundaries of your role, but from a very values-led human relationship perspective so that they can go, I can do this. Do you know, it's not, I can do this if I've got Tammy by my side or I need Tammy to be able to do this. It's, I can do this and I know where to access those resources. So I think it's recognising that it's best not only for you as an individual, but for the service users you're working with, if you really want to help them be able to transform their lives, then you need to be able to be supporting them to be able to do that. Like you said earlier, it's their journey. It's not our journey. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it can be very easy to create a codependent professional relationship, you know, because actually, you know, is most people within services are learnt helplessness, yeah? So they become dependent on services. And then you do get a lot of people within the services, like you say, that actually they like people to depend on them, yeah? So they kind of create that codependent relationship. 
Whereas actually what you want is an interdependent relationship, which I always explain like train tracks, you know, it's like they're both train tracks are completely independent of each other, but they're going in the same direction. <laughs> yeah, and they can stop at the same stations and, yeah. you know, brilliant. Yeah. And the thing is as well is, you know, is when you open them up to a network of other people, you know, they will go to those other people and then their other people will know other people and they'll yeah. send them on to somewhere else and somewhere else and their journey continues and you've just been the one that's initiated that movement, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In a world where caseloads are increasing, pressure is getting higher, the monitoring expectations of everybody within the sector, like you said, is, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy around it. In that world, we have to recognise and manage all of these different elements as well. That's certainly something that when I've been directly supervising frontline workers, I've really had a conversation with them about actually where where are your service users on this journey? What are we doing to support them through rather than to remain with? And actually, who else can be involved to support and lift them to where they need to be to be able to have those skills? It's a mixture of all of those things. But I go back to what you said earlier about that grey area. It's a mixture of all of those things, but it certainly isn't simple, is it? No, 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 no. And I think the, uh, uh, you know, so I've worked in lots of different services. The first service I worked in was a young person's hostel. And our mantra was that we were taking people from dependence to independence. Yeah. <laughs> but I believe that's with all services. Yeah. They're dependent on us, but our job is to make them independent. And for that, you know, is we have to very much circulate the gray area because we have to find a way to be able to connect with them so they can learn to trust us because it's only once they trust us that they'll listen to the information that we give and then they will then start to maybe look at other services that they can kind of, that can support them. And that's when the journey continues, you know, and uh, as professionals, as you go on longer in your journey, yeah, all of a sudden, like 15 years later, you'll have somebody come up and go, Giffen! You can't remember who they are. And then they'll go, oh, do you remember you worked with me so-and-so? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you said that to me. And, and then they tell you about their life and, you know, and they've got a job and they've got a family and they've got a house and they go on holiday and they've got no services around them. And then you think, actually, that's what we did. We initiated the journey. And then yeah. they come. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that is, it really is one of the best feelings in the world. But also that distance is brilliant to recognize that because the flip side of that would have been you still know that person, you're still working with that person. Do you know, whereas actually the feeling of them coming back and saying to you, this was the part that you played. And then this is what I took from it, did with it and who I met, ran with, etc. I haven't yet come across any better feeling than that from a professional perspective of somebody coming back, particularly somebody that hasn't necessarily marked in my mind. So there's certain service users that I will remember forever. The firsts of all different types, you remember forever, don't you? The the really complex ones or the really high risk ones or ones that have a very similar shared history to you. There's certain that you remember forever and they shape your professional career. But equally, the ones that come back that you don't realise that actually they're going to remember you forever for elements of different things that you've done. I don't think there is anything better. But going back to the topic, I know that only when I'm looking after myself and am I recognising my limitations and leaning into my support networks, am I even able as a frontline worker to support people effectively in the way that they deserve to be supported? Yeah. And that's the thing for me is, is my own self-care is the most important thing out of everything. So now I'm an independent now. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a limited company. 
But what I did is I pay for my own supervision every month. Yeah. And I've been doing that through the whole of this journey. So when I left local authority to kind of set this up and then I started to work in prison straight away, I thought, you know, I need some extra support from myself, you know, so I've got my supervisor that I have a conversation with once a month. But then also as well, I've got a network, which is like you, Tammy, you know, and we've got the Growth Alliance and, you know, and there's a few others that I'm involved in as well. I've got a wealth of people around me that emotionally support me when it is that I kind of need it. And I suppose the other thing as well, it's about being honest as well. You know, for me, the honesty is the most important thing here is because what it is, is we put ourselves in a position of being a professional and that we should be this strong person that can cope with everything. But that's not always true, you know. And today, that's why I wear silly hats sometimes. And <laughs> is I don't mind telling people, yeah, when I'm struggling. Yeah, I don't mind telling people. Even sometimes I do it on social media, yeah, because everybody puts on social media about how great life is. And sometimes I go, do you know what? It's a bit tough at the moment, you know, but I expect it's tough for other people out there as well, you know, and then other people usually go, yeah, it's tough for me too, you know. It's about having sort of like your supervisor, other people around you, you know, where you can actually be honest and open about how you're truly feeling, yeah, rather than the kind of the act that we sometimes put on because we all do it because that's part of being human too. Yeah, exactly. It's part of being human. That that facade is kind of, it feels like self-protection, but in some ways it's doing the exact opposite. Do you know, I'm really thrilled to hear that you sought out a supervisor and I do the exact same because I need that personally. And I think when you work for yourself and particularly when you're still connected into these fields and trying to make the change that we're trying to make, sometimes you can prioritise other things. And so it's really brilliant. And the perfect end to this podcast is how you're role modelling that to everybody else, that you absolutely recognise how important this is. And so you've put it first at the top of your list. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and this might sound a bit mental, but in prisons, yeah, they, they don't have any supervision model. Yeah, no supervision for prison officers. Absolutely, like, just blows my mind. And when I speak with new poll outs, so that's new prison officers, I always, always advise them as well, you know, uh, spend a bit of your wages, yeah, and go and get your own kind of little bit of supervision. Do you know what I mean? A bit of talking therapy, whatever that kind of is, you know, give out that one meal a month, you know, and spend it on something that's actually going to emotionally support you so that you can be the best prison officer you can for as long as you can. Yeah. So if you don't get supervision for wherever you are, you know, go go and invest in it somewhere. Yeah. And if you can't afford to look out for that network, because there will be, there absolutely will be, you know, come along to the Training for Influence group. We've got a brilliant network. There's loads of networks out there that will work for you where you can have those conversations. Ideally, of course, effective supervision. And actually, um, Gethin, I'm going to add it to your challenge in your new role because I think that is something that is ridiculous that it's missed within the prison service. And I know some prisons do offer supervision, but they do it internally rather than as a government directive. So I hand that to you as your challenge, Mr. Gethin Jones, <laughs> to help at different levels recognise the fact that if there was standardised supervision, actually the difference in retention rate, you know, if you want to take it down to money, yeah. the difference in retention rate for staff would be phenomenal, but also their, their ability, their capability, the professional boundary, you know, well, I'm preaching to converted. I don't need to say all this to you because you'll be saying all of this to somebody else. But yeah, it would be great to actually see that change because I personally, I think it really needs to. Yeah. And that is one of my missions, you know, with with the probation, they do have supervision, but it's it's sometimes not the best supervision. So I'm going to make it, I'm going to clean it up a bit with the probation. (laughs) Uh, Set, Set your sights high. 
yeah, yeah. So I'm going to clean up the probations, yeah, make it actually fit for purpose. Uh, but then, yeah, with prisons, that is on the agenda. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, Gethin, I really loved, well, I always really love talking to you, but I particularly love the fact that we've recorded it and other people are going to listen in and hopefully get some benefit from this and recognise how important it is to look after ourselves, particularly when we're under so much pressure from every single direction, personally and professionally. Is there anything you would like to just say to the listeners to finish off final words of advice? No, no, no. I just wish you all well in your careers. Yeah. Uh, carry on listening to these podcasts because you'll hear some fantastic people within it. My only really passing words really would be just don't stop learning. Just don't stop learning. You know, I once heard somebody say, and they spoke to a prison officer that said, actually, I've been in the service for 30 years. Yeah. So I've been in the service for 30 years. Yeah. I've got 30 years of experience. But then their manager realized, actually, you've only got one year's worth of experience that you've repeated 30 times. Yeah. Oh, oh, gosh. Mic drop at that moment. <laughs> really good point. Certainly something to reflect on. Getting. Do me a favor, just tell people where they'll be able to find out more about you if they want to follow your journey, because you do have a book, which I have read, which is fantastic. And you are prevalent on social media. So tell people where they can find out more about Gethin Jones. Yes, uh, I've got a website, www.unlockingthepotential.co.uk. You can find me on LinkedIn as Gethin Jones Unlocking Potential. Facebook is Gethin Jones Unlocking Potential. Uh, Twitter, Gethin Unlocks. As Tammy just said, I've got a book which is called Unconscious Incarceration, which is how we can release ourselves from the prison of the mind. And on the 1st of January, I've got my second book, uh, which is going to be called How to F Star Star K Upper. (laughs) So anyway... Everybody, just so you know, we've had five takes of Gethin attempting to tell us what his new book is going to be called. So on the 1st of January, 2021, Gethin, it's going to be called... How to Beep and Still Succeed. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, no swear words on this podcast, but you can can read between those beeping lines, I think. And we'll put all of the contacts in the show notes. And I'll certainly be purchasing the coffee, Geffen. I really look forward to it. Brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.